The passage today we'll be reading is found on page 499 in our church Bible, so I'll just give you a moment to find that. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written that no Ammonite and Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Elisha, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had been provided him and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then I put them back into put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, oil, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Levite named Padiah in the charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Matani, their assistant, because of these men who were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not bloat out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing? So our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon the city. Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? 
If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led to be into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodah, son of Elisha, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Heronite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and covenants and priesthood of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of every foreign, everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision and for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember we, me with favor, O oh my God. I wonder as we had that passage read out to us and as hopefully you were following it, I wonder what you made of it. It's not quite the ending to Nehemiah that maybe we were expecting. Seven weeks we've been spending going through this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And so this week we get to the end. And up to this point, it's been mainly encouraging. Uh, Maybe if seven weeks is a long time to remember, or maybe if you've joined us halfway through the series, or maybe for you this is your first week with us as we finish this series in Nehemiah. Let me do a very, very quick whistle-stop tour of Nehemiah to get us up to speed with where we're up to. If you can remember seven weeks ago, all the way back in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah wasn't even in Jerusalem, wasn't in Judah. He was in a foreign country in Susa, the city of Susa. And the walls of Jerusalem were in ruins. The people were in disarray. And so the first six chapters of Nehemiah involve him coming back to the city and starting a building project to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And he does that in the midst of opposition. And they complete it in a matter of weeks. And then the next six chapters speak about the restoring and the renewing of God's people. And so we see in chapter 8 the people come together to hear the word of God. They confess their sins in chapter 9. They recommit themselves to God in chapter 10. They repopulate the city in chapter 11. And then they rededicate the walls in chapter 12. And if you were with us last week, you would have seen that the joy and the thankfulness and the praise that that involved for all the people. And so it's natural to think that chapter 12 is a great place to finish the book. 
It's kind of like your Hollywood ending. It's the, the people living happily ever after. And so Nehemiah just ended it there. Job done. It's so true, isn't it, of our Hollywood films. The love story ends with the kiss and the wedding. Or, or the action film ends with the hero beating the enemy. You take a Lord of the Rings and the ring is destroyed and Aragorn is king. Could you imagine the love story continuing on for another half hour and it finishes at the point of the couple's first argument a couple of weeks in? Or, or Lord of the Rings finishing with the people rebelling against their new king? It's not meant to work like that. And so as we head into this final chapter of Nehemiah, things don't look so good. Instead of listening to God, they start listening to the voices of the world around them. They compromise in areas in this chapter that we actually see a few chapters earlier that they commit to following God in. Areas that hopefully we'll see we maybe today could be tempted to listen to the voices of the world around us. And so whilst we might have heard this chapter read out, we might read this chapter and we don't really feel we need this kind of ending. Or, or maybe stronger, we don't want this kind of ending. I think hopefully as we look through it, we'll see that we need the realism of the events of this chapter. And we need to hear the warning of the events of this chapter. So we're going to have a look at the three areas where the people fail to follow God in. And then, as we finish, as we round up Nehemiah, as we come to the end, we're going to have a think, what on earth are we to make of all of this? So plenty to get our teeth into this evening. Let's have a look at these three areas. Here's the first. It involves our worship. Our worship, verses 1 to 14. Because you see, the people fail in terms of their worship. You see, in the Old Testament, the, the centre of the worship of God was found in the temple. And yet here we read that the temple is being misused. Have a look down at verse 4, page 499. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine and oil, prescribed for the Levites, singers and gatekeepers, as well as the contribution for the priests. Any name ring a bell there? Do you remember Tobiah from earlier on in Nehemiah? In chapters 4 and, and 6, Tobiah comes up as an enemy of God, as an enemy of Nehemiah. In fact, at the end of chapter 6, we learn that Tobiah is kind of worming his way in with people on the inside building almost networks so he can build that opposition up against Nehemiah. And now we see chapter 13, he's got his own room in the temple. He's really able to build those networks now. He's right at the centre, where the heart of where the worship of God should be happening. And instead of the place being about somewhere where people can come to please God, to enjoy God, to worship God, to seek his favour. They've turned it to please man. And not just any man, but an enemy of God. 
We're told, verse 6, we're given a bit of context for where Nehemiah is at this point. Nehemiah is away when all of this happens. He's returned back to King Artaxerxes, as he said he would have done, as he said he will do, back in chapter 2. And it's not clear here how long he's been away, uh, potentially probably years. And this is how he finds things as he returns. And you notice how Nehemiah is quick to move. He identifies the problem, verse 7. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. And once identifying the problem, he acts, verse 8. I was greatly displeased. I threw out all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. You see, it's it's not just that a room has been given to someone who's an enemy of God. That's bad enough, but it's not just that. But it's in giving this room to him that the articles that are used for worship, and, and did you see the tithes that are given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers, we're told in verse 5. Tithes that are given to enable them to do their job so they don't have to worry about where their money or their food is coming from. Well, because that's been got rid of, Well, we're told, verse 10, they have to return home, home to their fields, to to look after themselves, to enable themselves to live. Do you see what's happening? Verse 11, Nehemiah sums it up for us over the page. Why is the house of God neglected? Exactly what the people promised they wouldn't do back in chapter 10, verse 39. It's amazing. You see, they make friendship with the world over their worship to God. I wonder what might the areas be that we can be in danger of a friendship to the world over a loyalty to the creator of the world, our God. I wonder what are the things that could get in the way and take us away from God and worshipping him. Whether that's things on a Sunday that could prevent us from getting along to church, or whether that's even things during the week that can can get in the way and, and take a priority away from spending time with God. The people of God, they make friends with the enemy of God, which takes them away from worshiping God. There's the first thing, our worship. Second one, our work. Verses 15 to 22, our work. You see, the people of God fail when it comes to the Sabbath. The people are working on the Sabbath rather than taking it as a day of rest. Verse 15, in those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into the Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise, selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. You see, the Sabbath day, Sabbath, was given to the people of God to to mark them out as different from those around them. They're given a day in their week in which they are to rest from their work, just as God rested at the end of creation, back in Genesis. It it was to show that they don't live for this world, 
but they're different. They're made not just for work, but for worship. And yet, Nehemiah tells them here, do you see what you're doing? Verse 17, you're desecrating the Sabbath. In fact, verse 18, he warns them that it's this that led to their exile in the first place. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah was one of the Old Testament prophets who who spoke the warnings from God to the people before they went away, were taken away on exile. And here's one of the things he warned them about on the screen. Jeremiah said, But if you do not obey me to keep the Sabbath day holy by not carrying any food as you come through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortresses. There's the warning for the people. Learn from history. And yet the people decide that it would be better for their work, it would be better for the economy, if they just relax the Sabbath a little bit. Do you see how God is being slowly pushed to the margins? And again, it's what they, exactly what they committed not to do in chapter 10, verse 31. And so Nehemiah acts to stop it from happening. Verse 19 to 21, he shuts the doors. He stations some men on the gates. He, he even warns them and confronts them. He gets Levites to guard the gates so that the people would realise the significance of Sabbath rest. And so that that priority, that principle of Sabbath rest, is still good for us today. Not not as a, a law to keep that binds us, but as an invitation from God that we get to enjoy. An invitation to rest from our work. An invitation every single Sunday to come, to gather together, to meet with one another, but greater than that, to meet with the living God. It's an invitation to rest. And within that invitation, there is a challenge. There's a challenge to say, will you stop? Will you pause? Will you rest? And will you trust in the Lord with your work? Entrust your work to the Lord so that you can stop, pause, and rest. And as we travel into the New Testament, we find that our our Sabbath rest finds finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. He says these words in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for yourselves. What a beautiful invitation that is for anyone here who is feeling weary or burdened or feeling the pressure or feeling like it's just too much. Jesus says, come to me. And and you won't find a a kind of wagging finger telling you off and saying, oh, look, I told you so. Or have you gone and done it again? No, come to Jesus and find arms outstretched, saying, come and rest. 
And so the challenge is, will we commit our work, whatever work that might be, whether that's paid work, college work, will we commit that to him and so enjoy our rest in him? Our worship, our work, and I tried to find another W, but I couldn't quite find another W. The best I could come up with was our relationships. I won't say our relationships, but our relationships, verses 23 to 31. Here's the final issue we see here. The people of God fail when it comes to their relationships. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Again, exactly what they said they wouldn't do back in chapter 10, verse 30. It's incredible, isn't it? Three of the things they they specifically committed themselves to God for are the things they end up being unfaithful to God. But hey, maybe it's not surprising. Maybe there's a lesson learned that that so often it's the thing that say, God, I'm never going to do that again, is the thing that we can find ourselves tempted with again. What's the issue here? Well, Nehemiah points out a few things. Do you see first, verse 24? He says there's a real impact on, on the children. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Nehemiah is saying, do you realise your your children aren't even being brought up to be able to speak the language? And back then, speaking the language was so important because that's how you can read the scriptures. That's how you hear about God. That's how you take part in worship. Not just the impact on the children, but he says, learn the warnings from history. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Nehemiah says, do you not see how this is what led to King Solomon's downfall? And with him, the whole of Israel... Now learn from history. Don't go down the same path. And then verse 28, Nehemiah shows us it's even crept into the temple leaders. One of the sons of Jediah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambala, the Horonite. Remember him? Along with Tobiah, the two main opponents to Nehemiah in chapters 4 and 6, Here he is, the enemy of God, married in through his daughter into the priesthood's family. And look, we need to be really careful here as we read these verses. And notice that the concern is not racial, but religious. Because the warning for the Jewish people is marrying people who aren't Jewish people. There is a real danger. There is a danger that they can lead them astray from their devotion to God. A danger that they would compromise with their partner's beliefs and and idolatries. A danger that it can lead their children astray. And so it it can, can just end up watering down their distinctiveness as the people of God. And do you notice how seriously Nehemiah takes this? He calls it, verse 27, a wickedness. Verse 28, his reaction to Sambalat is to drive them out. I mean, what do you make of verse 25? 
I rebuked them, called down curses on them. I beat some of the men, pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name. Now, there isn't a direct comment on Nehemiah's actions here. But we see in other parts of the Old Testament, prophets and people of God calling down curses from God, making people take oaths, and, and examples of, of removing of, of facial hair as, as a symbolic act of embarrassment and shame. And so whilst maybe this isn't the best reaction, do you see how much it, it moves Nehemiah? There's a warning here to those marrying outside the people of God because there's a danger here of marrying outside the people of God. And that warning can carry over to us today. And I realise that as I say that, I realise that will be a really hard topic for some people here to hear. For those of you who are here and, and who are single and are thinking about marriage or, or wanting marriage, can I encourage you to marry someone who shares your faith? Because just like what happened to Solomon, the danger can be that sharing your life with someone who doesn't share your faith can lead you to be led astray, can weaken your devotion to Christ. And I don't think it's just a call to who we marry, but I think there's an extension here to who we might go out with or, or go on dates with or who's our boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever language it is today. <coughs> Ensure that someone who shares your faith, your priorities. Because if your faith in Jesus Christ is, is the most precious thing, the most important thing in your life, you'll want that in the person that you'll spend your life with, right? Otherwise, the danger is that, that they can be walking through life with a, with a completely different worldview, with completely different priorities in life. And look, I'm not saying that that person will be kind of deliberately out to, to stop you from following Jesus. But when things are hard, I want someone beside me, the closest person to me, I want to know that they'll pray for me. In fact, I want to know that they'll be praying with me. I want that person to be showing me Jesus, encouraging me with the words of Jesus, telling me that Jesus loves me and he'll never leave me. I want that person stood next to me in church, singing with me, praising God with me. And so if this is something that you find hard, that challenges you, please do speak to someone. If you're one of the young people here, do speak to Alex or one of the youth leaders here. Speak to Rob or, or to Caroline or to myself or to your house group leader. Because we want to help one another keep going in our faith. And it's worth saying here at this point, I'm conscious that there'll be people here in this church who, who are married to those who aren't Christians. And, and Paul in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, 7 says, keep going in those marriages. Be the, be the best wife or, or husband that you can be. Pray for that impact, the best impact you can have on your spouse and your children.
And I think there's a call here for the church here to be supporting those people. Because that can be a really hard path to walk in. So our worship, our work, our relationships. Here's the warnings from chapter 13. Don't slip into a a, a compromise with the world around us, our church life, our work life, our home life. Be aware of the social pressures to get on with the people around us. Beware of, of work and career pressures to get further in the world. Beware of the relational pressures of the people around us. And that will be a challenge, not just individually in our own lives, but corporately as a church together. Will we continue to listen to the word of God and not compromise by listening to the words of the world and culture around us? And so as we come to the end of Nehemiah, as Bugs Bunny would say, that's all, folks. That's it. We, we get to the end of Nehemiah, and that's how it ends. And do you realize that chronologically, Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament? It, it's kind of hard to pick that up in our, our Bibles, our English Bibles, because there's quite a few pages of the Old Testament to go. But our Bibles are, are organized by genre, by book type. So we still have all the poetry books and all the prophetic books to go. And yet, if you were to organise our Bibles, our Old Testament, chronologically, well, that's it, after Nehemiah. It's a bit of an anticlimax, isn't it? Especially after the high of chapter 12. I don't know about you, but I'm, <laughs> I'm left with questions. I'm left wanting more. I'm left needing more. You see, we've seen Nehemiah throughout the book. He's a good leader. Do you notice how after each of these three episodes, he commends himself to God? Nehemiah prays to his God. Prayers of a man that's seeking God's approval, not man's approval. But Nehemiah couldn't do everything that was needed for the people. The people are left needing a better leader. And I wonder, did you notice the thing that happens, the same thing that happens after each of the three episodes? Verse 9, verse 22, verse 30. Did you see the, did you notice the repeated refrain? The purification is needed. Purification of the people is needed. To purify in Bible terms is, is to set apart as holy. The people are needed to be purified as holy. And so it points forward to the need that the people have. A purifying, a changing, a transformation is needed. We're left wanting more. We're left needing more. And so 400 years later, there is one who came, who changed the way that we rest and approach our work. And so our Sabbath rest is to enjoy the rest that is found in him. Who changes our relationships, who shows us that our deepest need relationally is a relationship with him. 
In fact, as we saw on Wednesday, if you hear at Equip, shows us that every human marriage is just to point forward to the marriage that is made in heaven with him who changes us. So in the Old Testament, the, the temple was the place where God was found. So did you notice the first purifying was of the temple? And yet in the New Testament, we're told that every single believer is described as a temple because that is now where God is found through his Holy Spirit. And so there is a, a purification, a changing, a transforming that is done of every single believer. Not by our own efforts, but by the Holy Spirit working inside of us. Here is the need that is met in Jesus. The people in Nehemiah are left at the end of this, looking forward, waiting for that day. And so we here can look back and see all that Jesus has achieved. And yet still I can look around at the world around us, and, and not just the world, I can look around at the church around us, and I'm left wanting more. And so not only does it make us look back to all that Christ has achieved, it helps us to look forward to that future day when he will gather his church together where his people, as we've seen a number of times in Revelation 21, his people are called the New Jerusalem, the Holy City. And so we will be with him, where there will be perfect worship. There will be perfect rest. And there will be perfect relationship. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for the lessons that we have learnt throughout Nehemiah and thank you for the challenges that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 13. Help us as we finish this series, help us to long for more that we see met in Jesus Christ, both now but also not yet as we look forward to that future day when we get to be with you and enjoy perfect <coughs> worship, perfect rest, and perfect relationship. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so the first question we've had, um, or the one that's got some of the most votes, is what would you say to those who are currently dating non-Christians, um, especially those who might have made a, a promise, um, which they need to break? Um, how, yeah, what, what would you say to that? What, what, if people find themselves in that situation, yeah. what would you advise? And I'm sure there's lots of, yeah, potentially other things coming into this subject. Um, in one sense, I don't know what those promises are from this question, so, yeah, hard to speak into exactly what those promises are. Um, but, I, look, I, I want to love them, and so whatever I say, I want to say it with love um, and to um, be interested in them as individuals. But as I'm interested in them as individuals and to love them, I, I think I do want to show them what I think God's good way is for us when it comes to relationships and so in terms of the particulars in, it seems like this could be speaking to a particular instance of a promise that's made um, I don't know what that promise is so come and speak to me or someone else if you wanted to chat that through more um, but I think I do just want to show them what is, what is our priority as a Christian, how important is your faith in God in your life 
And what would that look like to share that with someone who has or doesn't have that in their life and help them to think that through? Anything you want to... Yeah, I think, um, kind of just on that, on that topic of relationships and dating on Christians, I think it might be easy for people to think, well, it's very easy for you to say, Woody, because you, you're obviously married uh, to a Christian, and that's, that's great for you. Um, but yeah, I was just sort of reflecting as you were, as you were speaking. So I'm, um, I'm single, I'm a single Christian uh, woman, and I completely get that singleness can be really hard um, at times, and that can sometimes, I think, drive people to seek relationships with non-Christians. I think if you're a Christian, it can feel like the pool of people uh, that you have to find a potential spouse from is a lot smaller, so you can see why people might be drawn down that path. Um, but yeah, I'd really say that that is not the answer to the difficulties that we might have um, with singleness. Um, there's, yeah, there's a lot that can be said on that, and I'd be really happy to chat to anyone afterwards if that's, if that's relevant. Yeah, and, and uh, do take Zoe up on that. I think that's yeah. a really helpful thing to hear. Um, but can be more helpful to kind of chat that through and, and hear that call that it is hard, um, but that doesn't mean we kind of just do away yeah, with it. But that's, it. Yeah, it's hard, but it doesn't mean that that's, it's a non-viable option. You know, yeah. It's, it, yeah. There's a lot that can be said on that, um, but I think we'll, yeah, we'll leave that for another time. Um, so moving on to some of our other questions. Um, someone asked, how far do we go by... Uh, separating ourselves or being different from the rest of the secular world. So you mentioned about how um, ideally we want to keep the Sabbath mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of different to the world. Is there yeah. anything else that we should do? Well, I, I think in one sense you could look at everything that we might do as Christians living in this world and think, how can I be distinctive? And so there may be things that, that you just see in God's word that he says, don't go there, don't get involved in that. That's a kind of black and white don't go there as a Christian. Whereas there'll be other areas of life, um, like work, like hanging out with friends, um, different parts of culture where you go, look, there's nothing inherently sinful in being a part of that, but what does it look like to be different as you're a part of that? The Bible doesn't call us to cut ourselves off from the whole of the watching world around us, but as we're, the New Testament, Peter calls it, as we're aliens and strangers, as we're Um, in a world that we don't necessarily belong to because we belong to Christ, what will it look like to be distinct and different as we live in that world? So with work, work is a good thing. We're called to work, but how can we still be distinctive in our work, in in our attitude of how we go about our work, in our priorities in our work, but also to, to rest from our work? And so there'll be other areas of life, and it'll be different for different people here, of thinking through, right, as I'm involved in that area, how can I be distinctive as a Christian? How does God's call on me as a Christian to follow him shape and affect the way that I live in that area of my world? If there's particulars, then do come and speak to me or someone else, thinking through, what what does that look like for me? I'm not sure in that specific area, what might that look like for me? Right, I think we've got time just for um, one last one. So um, people have asked about um, Tobiah, this kind of enemy of God who ended up being closely involved in the temple. Um, someone asked, it sounds like he might have sort of deceived people to worm his way in, and how can we protect ourselves from something similar happening today? Yeah, good. And, and, in the, and the question says, whilst remaining welcoming, and that's what we want to do here at St Mary's. We want to welcome all people here into the church and be welcoming to all. Um, how do we remain on our guard, um, being aware of to see? I, I think two quick things. Um, one, 
let God's word fill you and shape you. And so letting God's word um, shape how we think and feel, hopefully then as people speak to us, we're able to go, "Mm, actually, I don't know if that agrees with what God's word might say. So let God's word fill you. And and surround yourself with godly, wise Christians, (laughs) whether that's people your age or people older than you, who you're able to just bounce things off or, or just ask them, oh, that person said that, I'm not, not quite sure what they were meaning by that or, or where they were going. Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, just, just the benefit and value I've had of just being, having Christians around me who I'm able to go, could you just help me out here? I'm, I'm not quite sure there. Has, has just been massive throughout my life. Um, so let God's word fill you. Get good Christians around you who can help you. That's great. Thanks, Woody. It's really helpful to end on some more practical points there. 